0: Getting a Tom Duran interview is exceptionally difficult. The only long, you know, the lengthy interview you'll get with Tom Duran is the one that I've had with Tom Duran. But what people don't know is I interviewed him twice. Sometimes when I interview poker players and Tom's one of these, anything that he says to me during an interview in his mind can be used against him by his opponent. Now, you don't get this a lot, but you do get it with some really high performers. I don't want to talk to you because I don't want people to gain an edge on me.
1: Hi and welcome, it's Runchex and you're listening to my podcast where I explore the topics around what it takes to become a great poker player with various interesting people from in and around poker industry. Today my guest is Lee Davey. Some of you know him as a poker journalist. He is a regular poker writer. He has interviewed many of the best poker players in the world as part of the I Am High Stakes series. But some of you might know him as the guy who created the Thousand Day Sober organization. We of course talk about some of the biggest names that Lee has interviewed. I mean, guys like Tom DeWan, Jason Kuhn, True Teller. But more importantly, we talk at length about addiction and Lee's story. Now, I don't know if you specifically need to hear the message that Lee shares about addiction. I certainly would not have thought that I have time for such topics. But this was quite an eye-opening conversation for me. So I encourage you to stick with it and listen with an open mind. Maybe you'll just have a few laughs. Maybe it will change your life. And maybe you know somebody who would benefit from hearing this. So go ahead and share this episode with them. Either way, I personally really enjoyed this conversation and I hope you will too. I guess we're live. For the uh-huh. purposes of of the conversation, Lee, so so glad to have you on. Uh, thank you for finding the time.
0: No, and thank you for reaching out and asking me to come on. It's always a real pleasure, you know. Mm.
1: Well, maybe actually let's let's start with that. You know, let's start with why we ended up having this conversation now. And to be honest, I don't know what to expect from the the coming hour that we have, but I'm really looking forward mm. to it because I think the topic. The main topic that we want to address is, first of all, really important and quite interesting and not much talked about, you know, not commonly thought, talked about, let's put it this way. So, yeah, let's start with um, how come we're, we're talking. Like, uh, Can you tell me a bit, how did this happen? So, if we go back a decade now, so
0: 10 years ago, I was working on the railway I've been at his school, so I've been a 19-year career railwayman, and I, you know, I I had a vision that I would one day be CEO, and I would retire at the age of 55 and live off my big fat railway pension and never work again. That was like my ultimate goal in life. But then, you know, something changed, and my. My drinking habits, uh, particularly when my son got to the toddler age, around three, four, where me and my wife would drink alcohol a lot more in the home rather than going out. Mm. And it would become, our house would become party central. So all my friends had kids around the same age. They would all come around. We would play poker in the kitchen. The kids would just be sat in front of a TV with all their little Nintendos, I, I have this photograph of like seven kids just all on their little Nintendos, four or five, you know, just like completely ignored by their parents. And we're just getting smashed in, in the kitchen. And and then it would just go on like it would never end. You know, the kids would just fall asleep on the floor. We would just be playing music. And, and it started to have a really uh, detrimental effect on my marriage. And at the time, I thought it was just alcohol. But I can see now in hindsight that it was... Uh, more of a, um, a lack of relational literacy, so the inability to communicate or even understand what part uh, or accept what part I had to play in that relationship. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I thought it was alcohol related, so I decided to uh, give up drinking alcohol uh, to save my marriage. It didn't work; it ended it. Uh, ended up in a in a divorce after being together for over twenty years. Um. But I felt an incredible sense of power that I, w- I was able to accomplish something that nobody else had done. So, you know, So I looked around me where I lived, I lived in this little Welsh mining uh, valley, and the only person I knew that had quit alcohol was my granddad. Hmm. I had two, two people, a female friend and a male friend who I actually played poker with who had never drunk before in their life, like complete outliers. It just never sat with them. They never did it. But everybody else drank, and that's what they did, and that was normal, and nobody had given up, and I I thought it was quite powerful. And the way that I gave up by really analyzing the value that alcohol provided me with, right? And to use use a poker analogy, I always remember my first coach, my first poker coach, he was so annoying because I was playing like $0.50, $1 cash games, and he would say – You raised to $4. And I'd be like, yeah. And he'd be like, why? And I'd be like, I don't know. (laughs) And he's like, you have no idea why you raised to $4. No. And he would just be hitting me all the time. Why? 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 And it was obvious that I was going for my poker game and my poker actions without even thinking about why I was doing what I was doing. And that's the same analogy applied to alcohol. It's like, why do I drink alcohol? I just went out tonight. Why did I drink it? You know? What, is there a better reason than I drunk it just because that is what people like me do? And I couldn't find a better reason. And then by dispelling all these so-called values that we attach to alcohol, I suddenly had no reason to drink it. So I had no desire and I was able to quit. That's a quite a powerful uh, realization for me to have when you look around and you see your mom, your dad, your sisters, your friends slowly killing themselves and more mentally than physically because they're so stuck in the matrix and alcohol is a way of keeping them stuck there that they the dreams are going to die within them and they're not going to they're not even thinking like oh fuck why am i doing this why they need they almost like need that poker coach i had And and it was killing me like you know to see them just get smashed. Uh, Smoke cigarettes is another one. Like just seeing my parents smoke cigarette after cigarette, killing themselves, knowing that actually they're not getting any value out of what they're doing. They just think that there's the value. So I decided, well, I need to do something about this, right? Like I need to create a company or an organization that I can help people to, to think like I'm thinking. Um, but you know, I, I wasn't divorced at this point. So I still had a wife. I still had a son. I had this 19 year railway career, which I was beginning to hate and despise because I was awake now. And I could realize that the only reason that I was going to work was to make money. Mm -hmm. No other reason. So, you know, it's like, how can I make this leap? So I took the biggest decision of my life. I, um, Asked my uh, personnel manager if I could leave on early retirement. They said, yeah. And they said, never come back again. Because of the position I was in, they couldn't allow me back in the company. Uh, So they immediately put me on gardening leave. And they gave me my early retirement. And that gave me a year. So I had a conversation with my wife. And I said, I got a year. And my goal is to make $45,000 through poker. Mm-hmm. Now, when you, when you think about now I sit next to high stakes tables with 8 million pounds on them, and I'm talking about, I need to make $45,000 in a year. You can see where I was at. Right. And, um, I started to, so my point was if I make $45,000, then I can continue playing poker and, and I've got the freedom that poker playing gives you to create this company, which is now called 1000 days Sober. Um, but I kept winning, playing live and I was losing online and I was going up and down and I could see this, this year coming closer and closer in. And it's not until you're free of the nine to five grind that you realize that you were in the nine to five grind, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you realize, holy shit, I can never go back and do that. So then I started to think to myself, are there, is there other ways that I can make money through poker that doesn't revolve around me playing? Because this playing lock is a little bit too dicey for me. Like, am I going to make it in a year? Probably not. So I just thought of this harebrained idea to write to fight poker magazine editors and, and say to them, I'm leaving the railway to become a pro poker player. That's an interesting story. Do you want a column? Thinking they're going to just pay me like loads of money. And then this one guy said, yeah, we'll do it. It was Poker Pro Europe magazine. he wasn't going to give me any money, but I was so pleased that he said, yeah, until I realized that I didn't know how to write. Like I I completely blagged my way into this spot. So I just quickly wrote something just thinking about my old English GCSEs and um, ended up in a poker industry as a writer. Um, And that gave me the freedom to enable me to earn some money to pay the bills You know, and I eventually, I eventually made a a really good career financially out of poker writing. Um, But my love was always creating this company 1000 Days Sober and I could never have done it if I'd stayed on the railway. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason that I, so that is like the beginning, the backstory and the inciting incident of my hero's journey, I guess. Uh, The reason I contacted you is, um... For many years now, I've been playing it small. So a lot of the times, my inner child has been taking the steering wheel, uh, and particularly around poker. So I live in two worlds. I live in the poker world, and I live in the health and wellness world. And if I put out a viewpoint in the health and wellness world around alcohol, or any other of my philosophies and viewpoints around addiction, it's it's met with warmth, love, understanding, um, very constructively put questions that advance my growth and make me think. And I like that. And whenever I put something out into the poker world, I am always worrying that I'm going to get back a barrage of hate. And trolling and ridiculing. And it, it got it got that bad that I decided that I would close down my Facebook page, just deleted it. And then I would never put anything out into that space other than poker. And if poker people hated my poker content, then I would just have to deal with it. That's just the way it is, right? Mm-hmm. I found it tough, but that's the way it is. But... No, I'm not, I've got like a, a great load of followers. I've got like maybe 3,000 Twitter followers. And I think that reason is, is because I haven't been engaging with them because I've been afraid. I've been afraid of engaging with the poker community over uncomfortable questions because to be honest with you, I don't like what I see. I don't like the way those conversations go. And I'm really uncomfortable um, when it's directed at me. It just builds up the type of energy I don't want in my life. But on the other hand, If I've got 3,000 people following me, then how many of those 3,000 people are not getting the help that they need that I can give them? So I've been doing some coaching and I've realized that my ability to overcome addictions is a gift. And if I don't go out there and try to give that gift to people, then I am out of alignment with my values. So... I've been doing a lot of work on myself, on my mental state, on removing the inner child from my steering wheel, and just being brave and courageous and putting more of my addiction stuff out on my poker Twitter account and talking more on that side of things. Um, And I've been exploring my relationship with the universe. Like I'm not religious in any sense, but I'm, I'm being pushed by a really good, strong, healthy crowd to try to open myself up more to um the way the energy works. And like if I'm always going around as a moany groany, um pessimistic, cynical, scared little man, then I'm gonna surround myself with people like that and I'm gonna get that back. Mm-hmm. So I'm 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 trying to change that. So the reason that I reached out to you is because I will I have got a plan to go through every single person who follows me on any social media platform. And just say to him, hey, I know you might be following me from poker, but I'm just about to start talking a little bit more about my love of addiction. And I want you to be aware of that because you might be like, hey, what's this guy doing? Like, I'm not interested in his thoughts on pornography or sex or drugs. I'm I just wanted to follow and read about his interviews. And it's been really nice because I've I've been having personal conversations behind the doors you know on the by dms and i've been saying are are you interested in this stuff and the overwhelming um feedback that i'm getting at the moment from my small sample size of the poker community this is a problem in the poker community um in addiction but that doesn't surprise me because the world has a problem with addiction and the poker is just a microcosm of the world right so Mm. i think to a certain extent, we're all addicted to something. Um, it's just that those some things have never really fit into the stereotype of what the world wants us to believe is an addiction. So um, a good example for me is I thought I'd overcome every single addiction, and it was only recently I realized that I'm a workaholic. You know, So I'm, I'm addicted to work, and what value do I get out of that? it takes me away from my wife and my daughter and my son. Why is that valuable? Because being a husband and being a father is far more complicated and stressful and anxiety ridden than creating programs to help people quit alcohol or interviewing high stakes poker players. So I realized I was running running away from uh, my family responsibilities, for example. So, so that that is a form of an addiction that you don't really get people talking about it. And how many people in poker are workaholics? As an you know, as an example, um, the other thing that I'm learning is the people who are the most driven to succeed, and if let's just say um, high stakes poker players as an example, are very often, I say very often, and not always, are very often the people who end up with quite a lot of mental health issues or relationship issues because that drive meant they had to neglect certain aspects of their life or they had to push through and drive through bodily constraints like sleep, like eating healthy, like spending time with those you love, doing something joyful, happy. You know, when you, when you hear people say, wow, like I interviewed uh, Timothy Kuznetsov the other day, you know, Mm-hmm. Fucking crazy. Kids like 19 turns around and says, I want to make a goal of 10 million. I actually thought he said 1 million, but he actually said 10 million and he makes it by the time he's 22. Massive, for those, right? yeah. For makes,
1: those viewers who don't know, it's a true teller that we're talking yeah, yeah. about, right?
0: Yeah, true teller, yeah. He makes it and it's like crazy. I'm like, wow, guy made 10 million. But then he tells me in in one of those years and uh, the other years were very similar, but in one of those years, he played poker for three hundred and sixty-three days, mm. and this is a, this is a, this is a, somebody who's not going to be playing six hours and then turning his, his uh, computer off, right? So, and then you talk to him now and 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 if he's like, you know, people don't understand how complicated it is to deal with the emotional swings of playing that high with that much money with that much competition consistently. How hard that is, so. What does that mean? That means that there is some pain and suffering going to be associated with that word "hard," There's something that Timothy is crushing within himself or not taking care of himself, that someone like me can come along and say, "Hey, would you be interested in me helping you with that?" You know So that's where I am at the moment. I, I really like to, I really like to work with uh, crushers. Because the crushers have the mentality that they want to crush. And and when you want to give up your addictions, the mindset created by societal conditioning is very difficult. I don't I don't believe that is that has to be true. But the hard wiring is so solid that people find it really difficult to overcome smoking, alcohol. So they have to do a lot of work. And it's the crushers who are used to doing the work. If I said to Timothy Kuznetsov, you have to do this work, and he's used to working 365 days a year, and you know, I'm, I'm lightlier to get him doing the work. Now, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of poker players who don't like the work. You know, one that comes to mind, for example, is Rui Cow, right? So every time I speak to Rui, Ruby, Rui's like, oh, man, I don't like doing the work. And when I don't do the work, I get crushed. And then I get back in the lab and I do the work and I'm back to where I need to be and I'm loving it, I'm loving it, I'm loving it. And then I can't be bothered, I can't be bothered and I get crushed and I'm back in the lab. You know, so Rui might be a challenge if I if I found that Rui had an addiction and I said, come on Rui, let's work with you. It might be difficult to get him in the lab. But yeah, they're the people I'm after. So that's why I reached out to you, really.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so many things I want to touch upon from what you just uh, said. You know, first mm-hmm. of all, well, let's start bit by bit, you know, because like I said, there are so many questions I want to dig into and maybe just first my observation about what you said, which I think is very, very important that you do this work. And I am glad that you're reaching out to your followers in the poker world, you know, that you overcame this sort of barrier that you had before when you try to talk to the poker crowd, you mostly would get a lot of hate as a response. So I'm glad you overcame it. Because one of the things about addiction, which I think is surprising to a lot of people, is that it's hard to put a finger on, hey, there, I am addicted to something. Like, for example, yourself, you only recently realized, I'm actually a workaholic, which is a form of addiction, a form of escaping some other responsibilities, a form of escaping from what matters, you know, sort of escaping from trying to understand okay what's the purpose what are we doing here just getting stuck in a rut and let's just go for it right and i think with addictions which are not the obvious ones like drug addiction or the alcohol addiction which is you know visible from outside and pretty much if you are an alcoholic you know you are an alcoholic you know you might be in a you might be fooling yourself for for a few years but eventually you you reach the the conclusion but there are other other forms of addiction like um, addiction to work which is really hard to put a finger on right so un, unless somebody like yourself you know goes and explains to people um many times people wouldn't even realize so i think first of all you know thank you for for doing this and yeah, can I, I little,
0: can I make a little comment on yeah, that? Yeah, sure. But, Go ahead. So this, this might surprise you, but in the 10 years that I've been doing this, alcohol-related issues. I mean, I I in, in our work, we don't use the word alcoholic to describe somebody who's lost their control of alcohol. I could talk about that later, maybe. But mm-hmm. actually, alcohol addiction or alcohol dependence or whatever anybody wants to call it, Actually, falls into the nuanced um, area of alcoholic. So, smoking is is there, bang, smack in your face. Drugs mm-hmm. is there, bang, smack. But actually, alcohol isn't. Um, and the reason that is is you'll have a lot of people who, and this is the problem with the term alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So, the, I, I believe that we're all designed from birth to drink alcohol. Like the world, free market society, capitalism, whatever you want to call it, the world that we live in and exist drives addictive behaviors. And one of those addictive behaviors as it drives is to drink alcohol and to drink it in an unhealthy way, right? Like if there's ever a healthy way to drink a powerful poison, I don't know. But, you know, for people listening to this who think, well, I'm okay drinking a couple of glasses of wine, you know, we need to just face facts that this is, it's a drug and it's a poison and we put it in our body and we need to understand why we started doing that. And it's because the world tells us that we have to do it to belong. But we don't end up belonging, we end up just fitting in. We end up just doing these things that the world's telling us to do. So when I'm flying around Europe in poker tournaments, I'll have a a gin advert in front of my face. It's in front of my kid's face, in front of my face. You know, even reading old children's books, the amount of people who, who drink in them, the amount of people, like Beauty and the Beast, this this champagne and everything in Beauty and the Beast, right? Mm. So if you then turn around to a friend, like I, I've turned around to many of my friends who don't believe that they have a problem with alcohol, like, and they wouldn't consider themselves an alcoholic because our caricature of an alcoholic is so absurd. Like I've lost, I've pissed my pants. I got a brown paper bottle. I've lost everything. I'm an alcoholic, right? But but I d- defined as an alcoholic, as somebody who just didn't stop drinking, but continued to excel to be an S CEO on a railway, that everyone around me would have said you ain't got a problem because we're drinking just as much as you. Yet I'm polishing off a bottle of whiskey, playing an online poker session in the night, and thinking nothing of it, and not even having an hangover. I mean, I'm going to work right now. If you then try, if you then say to somebody, "Hey, run chucks, you don't think you got a problem with alcohol? I ain't got a problem with alcohol." Right, right, let's give up for a month, All right? Let's give up for a month. Let's give up for a month and see what happens. And then people people blow it. People don't understand. It's not until they, they try to stop it that they're like, we actually, it's not the alcohol that's a problem. I've got that sorted. That ain't a problem. What is a problem is every time I go out on a Saturday with my mates, everybody's drinking and I'm finding it really uncomfortable. And I'm like, oh, and you don't think alcohol's the problem? No, 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 alcohol's not the problem. It's just socially is a problem. No, dude, alcohol's a problem. You can't drink alcohol around your mates and you want to drink alcohol around your mates. That's the alcohol is the problem. If we took the alcohol out and nobody drank alcohol, there would be no problem, right? You would all be able to just get on, have a chat. When you go to Starbucks in an afternoon and meet your mates, you don't drink alcohol, right? You don't, but if you go into a Starbucks and you look around, and Starbucks will have alcohol at some point, I'm sure. But when you look around, you see people crying. You see people really deep, intent conversation. You see people who are not really paying attention to each other. You see people laughing and joking. You see, you see the full breadth of what humanity gets up to. There's no alcohol there. Nobody needs it. But we think we need it. And it's not until you stop. And then people like my dad will say, yeah, but I can stop anytime I want. Well, stop then. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to. I like it. Yeah, well, just stop, Dad. Let's just see how. We... No, no, I don't want to. I like it. Why? Why would I want to stop? I like it. It's not doing me any harm, you know. And, and that that is typical uh, defense and justifications and denial that comes with addiction. So, I just wanted to point that out. That uh, there will be a lot of people listening to this thinking, "Well, I, my dad's an alcoholic. My mum's an alcoholic. I I know they are because they went to rehab and did all this. But I'm not an alcoholic, and they're fifty and they've been drinking nonstop every weekend." And several times a week for thirty five years, right like
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know what is that? This is why for me this it's better to look at it as a spectrum at one hand, you have the caricature of the alcoholic, and then at the other end, you have runchucks who drinks um one glass of champagne a Christmas day every year but this but this oh. spectrum's like this.
1: Yeah, well, let's let's not put checks in the category of a champagne <laughs> drinker. First of all, I I don't like champagne, but uh, one glass on the New Year—that sounds optimistic. It's uh, it, it, you
0: do you get you get the grandma, don't you? That comes around the house, and she never drinks, and yeah, everybody's yeah, drinking. Absolutely. I
1: I know. have friends, I have friends who never had alcohol in their life, and they honestly, I think it's weird, and I think the whole culture. Because, as you said, even in the children's books, there would be, you know, champagne. There would be this. So, whenever you encounter somebody that just never drinks and never tried to drink, it seems really odd because it's not a norm.
0: Right. The breaking. The. I mean, right now there's a lot of around the world about dominant and non-dominant groups, mm-hmm. um, and you, you, you and you can see this everywhere, right? So we got it with Black Lives Matter at the moment. You see it in the high stakes poker. Um, uh, stratum, you know, you've got a dominant group of people who play, and then you've got the non-dominant group, the people who just sat around and not part of the group. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you see this, um, in, in alcohol addiction. So the dominant group are the people who drink alcohol. The non-dominant group are the people who don't drink alcohol. And what people fail to realize is there is oppression that exists in the gap between those two groups. That there's, there's ridicule, there's shame, there's, um, Abuse. There's uh, all manner of tricks that what I call resistance. That your yeah, ego um, that brings out to play to get you to join that dominant group because you're making that dominant group feel uncomfortable. Like they, mm. when when you go out and you don't drink, what's what's actually happening is the jungle drums of cognitive dissonance are slowly starting to beat in in their head. Do you ever watch Lord of the Rings?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Do do,
0: do you remember the Mines of Moria uh, scene where they, they realise that there's goblins are there because his sword goes blue. They're in the Mines of Moria downstairs and the drums slowly start to beat and they get louder and louder as they run. And like, run! (laughs) Well, if you go to a pub with somebody who drinks alcohol and you were with them for like 30 years, smashing it with them, and suddenly you turn around and say, do you know what, Ron Chucks, Ashley, get me a water. And he's like, what the what you fuck, what the fuck, what do you want a water for? Uh, you know, I've realized that it's just a poison, it's a drug, it doesn't provide me any value, uh, it's fucking up my life, like um, I had a real problem with it and I'm done and I'm feeling fucking top notch, man. Runchucks is gonna be like the, the jungle jumps, the cognitive dissonance which you silenced when you was a teenager. That moment when you was a teenager, when you went into being a teen and your body said, the child body and your child mind said, I don't want to drink this, right? I don't want to smoke this. I don't want to pop this pill. I don't want to let this guy touch my tits. Those moments you have when you're a teenager, which you silence to become part of the crowd, that cognitive dissonance in your mind that is saying, But I want to do this, don't want to do this, I want to do this, I don't want to do this. Your brain can't handle it, so it has to take sides. And and the people at their teenage years who turn around and say, fuck it, I'm just going to continue being a child, living my creativity, my true essence of being human, they're the ones who end up being truly magnificent creatures. But hey, what a terrible path they have to go through to get there. And I, I do see a lot of them in poker. They get picked on, they get abused. Right, because they're different, they're odd, they're weird, but they chose that very brave route. And then you get people like me or the the quote unquote jocks who at that age are like, no way, like I need to be important, I need to be liked. Like we're talking like the difference between a fixed mindset and the growth mindset, right? I need I have a fixed mindset, I need people to like me because that's where I get my love from. So I need a drink. I drink it. So I get my first pint, My I drink it. And my dad says, what is it like? And inside I'm like, this is disgusting. But I turn around and I say, it's great. Self-perception theory. The more we tell ourselves something is true, the more our mind will make it true for us. So before you know it, you know, you've silenced those cognitive dissonant drums because now you've made it, you've made, you've drawn a line in the sand. I'm going to be cool. I'm going to be hip. I'm going to drink. I'm going to smoke. I'm going to take drug. I'm going, I'm going to have uh, sex very young right and I'm gonna and I'm gonna accentuate the positives of it and make it so I'm, I'm a man or I'm a woman and I'm fucking hip and I'm cool and I'm hardcore right and I'm rad and all this kind of stuff right So once you silence those kind of distance what happens over the you know you get a job you, you get married you have kids and this becomes your life and and, and when you think back to your life, what can you remember? you remember these hugely emotional moments that become your memories, your kind of like your script of who you are, right? The the DNA, your memory DNA. And they're always linked to high emotional incidents. You know, the time you got married, the time someone died, the time you went out and partied with your mates. And it's always around that kind of like 20 to, to 25, 30, you know, I wonder what's a poker bracelet It's a good example of having a high emotional high, which isn't related to alcohol, right? But a lot of us are related to alcohol. So it, it gives off this skewed thought and feeling that I'm, I, alcohol is connected to the joy and wonderment in my life. So very long way around. When you drink in front of Run and he's now 35, he, he doesn't want to remember what he tried really hard to forget when he was a teenager, and you're shoving it in his face and this is why the biggest problem i have helping people quit alcohol is helping them realize that you don't need the friends that you have around you that there are 7.5 billion people in the world and you need to find new ones and you quickly find out who your friends are when you stop drinking alcohol
1: yeah interesting i've i've experienced some form of that when um cuz i occasionally I, I, I'm a regular drinker in a sense. Like I like my wine. I, I drink wine with dinner. I, I like a good steak. I like a good uh, glass or two of wine. Uh, but I do quit alcohol on a regular basis for at least a month every year because, like you said, it's you know just a double check yourself. Okay, is there a problem or am I actually enjoying it? You know and. Um, so I've been experiencing periods where you know I would be at a party and I'm the one not drinking, everybody is drinking. Um, well, first of all, it's, it gets boring really quickly because you realize people get really, really annoying. And then you look, think back at yourself and you think, well, I'm probably definitely also getting a bit annoying, at least a bit annoying when, when I had a few. So yeah, that, that's an eye-opener. But I want to ask you question, Lee. Because you've mentioned mm-hmm. earlier that, you know, sometimes you talk to people and they say, hey, like like your dad, for example, right? I don't have a problem with alcohol. Well, quit then. Well, I just like it. Why would I quit? How do you get the point across to these people? Like, why would they quit? If they don't see the problem with it, they don't think it's poison. They They're not buying into that, right? How is there a way? Is it even necessary to talk to them to get them... On the right track to or at least to make them think about something how, how do you approach that situation
0: okay so first of all i want to talk about a phenomenon called the death effect so there's um, an evolutionary biologist from australia called jeremy griffith he wrote two excellent books one called the species of denial and one called freedom where he tries to answer the uncomfortable question of why adolf hitler and mother Teresa exists how can human beings be capable of mass slaughter of children um white women and 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 etc and then at the other side like want to help want to give up everything to help them like what is it this in in our noggin in human the very humanness the human condition that allows us to do that and he talks about um the battle between our nerve-based, let me get this right now. He's He talks about the battle between being a human being, being an animal, and our natural human instincts, our natural animal instincts. And Migration is a good example, right? So we all want to, if we're a bird, we all want to migrate from A to B. And we don't know why we do it, we just do it. And then imagine if we put a human brain into that bird. So now he's flying from A to B, but, but, but as he's flying, he sees an island with a lot of bird chicks on there, you know, sexy bird chicks, and he sees some lovely bird seeds and his brain's kind of going, well, I want to go down there. I want to go down there and explore because his brain, like his is, is evolved, like the human brain. So now he needs to learn through experience. Not through uh, genetics and genes. like he, he's, he's thinking differently, so he wants to go down there, but the rest of the migratory birds, they don't want him to go down there. They're like, "Harry, what are you doing?" Well no, I want to go, look, no, Harry, we're birds. We just we just migrate from A to B. What the fuck's the matter with this guy?" So they, they shame him, and he feels ashamed because he feels like so different to these other birds, right? So they keep telling him, "No, no, no, come back, come back." But eventually he keeps wanting to go down. So eventually they say, Well, fuck that guy. He's obviously not a bird. He's not one of us. Like he's he's so he he's something wrong with him. So what happens to Harry is he goes down and now he's all alone. But inside his head is this is this battle we were talking about earlier on. Where Harry's saying to himself, his natural instincts are driving him to go to Africa or whatever. But at the same time, this new brain he has is saying to him, No, 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 I need to experience life. And he's having this conflict within himself. So what he's doing is he's having this shame battle and all addiction is rooted in shame, right? So he's having this this shame battle. Now he could go back to the flock and he could explain to these people what's going on with him, these other birds, but they're not going to understand him. And Jeremy Griffiths calls this the death effect. So it's very likely that me and you will have a conversation towards the end of this, it's very, it's very light. We won't do this, but it could be likely that we could have a conversation about wine and and what you value in wine and whatever. And mm-hmm. I could get you to see that actually everything you think is valuable about wine and your experience is not true. You could agree with that and then you could leave and then you could be at a party. Someone's got the steak and they say, do you want a glass of wine? And then you end up in a conversation about, well, what type of wines have you got? Or or to prepare yourself from going, you go to the supermarket and you start getting your favorite wine after we've had this conversation. That that's the death effect. So most people who have done such a good job of hiding their cognitive dissonance, they can't hear, they cannot hear you and they cannot see you. So I could be in front of my mom and dad. This is how deep the death effect goes. My mom and dad, they don't even talk about what I do. Like if I was to say to them, oh, but dad, I had um, um, an interview with Runchucks and I talked about my job of helping people quit alcohol, Uh, or this woman wrote wrote to me the other day and thanked me for saving her life, like saving her life. My mom and dad will change the conversation. Or they'll say, oh, that's nice. What's the weather like in LA right now? Hmm. But they don't even know they're doing it. It's, it's It's like my words are hitting a wall and just flopping down. They just don't... The worst ones are the ones where it's like, yeah, fucking get it, man. Yeah, drink It's fucking hardcore. It's so bad. Yeah, get everything you're doing. You're doing a wonderful job. Keep it up. It's good that we have people like you in the world, and then they go drink. That's a death effect. So when you work on the 1,000 Day Sober Program, we have six phases that we take people through. The first phase is called stuck. It's We're stuck. We, and there's and two types of stuck people. There's my dad who doesn't know that he's stuck, so he's never going to come to me anyway. And then there are those who come to me who are like, I think I've got a problem with alcohol, but I don't know what to do about it. I can go a couple of weeks without quitting, but then I just seem to come back to it. And that's bothering me. But I don't know what's going on. Stop. So I work with them for about three months going through that phase, just letting them be okay with it. And then you get to the thought phase where it's like, okay, let's deal with this ambivalence. let's, Let's figure out why we're having this conflict in our head. So that's the thought phase, another three months. Then and only then after the end of the fourth phase when we've dealt with the ambivalence and they no longer have any ambivalence, it's either I want to drink, I don't want to drink, I want to drink moderately. Very rare you get the middle one because the people who come to me who then say they want to drink moderately, they they can't. They end up either drinking or not drinking, right? It's very unusual for them to go back and moderate. Mm -hmm. So then we work on readiness. We get them ready to quit. And then initiative is taking action on quitting, and then vigilance is like maintaining that. So a lot of people will be surprised, but the work of James Prochaska, who created the trans-theoretical behavioral model of change, he believes once you quit something like alcohol, you're looking at five years before you've changed and hardwired your neurological connections to not associate all the rules that you created in the last 40 years around alcohol. So now when you walk into a bar after five years, you're not salivating. not like Pavlov's dog when you hear the final bell at 11 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. You're just like, I can't wait to get out of this fucking place, right? And then the last part is evolution, which is like the most important part, but very few people get there, is, okay, I don't drink anymore. But what does that mean about my life? What am I going to do now? Because I don't have any friends. The ones I do, I don't like. I've realised I don't like my job. I hate where I live. My husband bores me to death. I can't stand being around my kids, and I hate playing poker. And that's what I do for a living. What am I going to do? And this is why a lot of people end up drinking again, because they 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 mistake this opportunity for boredom. They 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 don't they got the wrong glasses on. So we 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 help people to build their rockets and fly to Mars. And as I told you earlier on, when I left the railway, my rocket was my pen and my Mars was the poker world. Mm-hmm. And right, right now I'm building a different rocket. You know, mm. So you had to be a role model, Runchucks. I have to be somebody that doesn't drink alcohol. I have to talk about it. I have to demonstrate when I go to social events that I don't need it. I have to feel questions when people ask me about putting pressure on them. And I have to look good. I have to have my shit together. And I have to be excelling in life. I have to be, I have to be walking the walk. So when somebody says to my dad, what the fuck? Why does Lee look 21 when he's 45? My dad can be like, oh, Well, he doesn't drink, he doesn't smoke, he's a vegan, blah, 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 you know? Especially for your kids. Think about where this is all coming from. It's our children. Like my son right now, he lives with his mum who drinks. He has massive battles, massive cognitive dissonance around drinking. He really doesn't want to do it. But he's being pulled into it by the system. He doesn't live with his dad. We talk about this all the time. If I wasn't a role model for him, he would just be getting smashed every night. I know that for sure because he's told me that, you know. People have to be ready. If they're not ready, it's never going to work. Never, ever, ever. So if you, if you decided you wanted to work with me, I would send you I'd book, a time, a slot for us. I'd send you a form for you to fill in. That's going to give me a lot of information about where you're at. Then I'm going to send you another video outlining the four reasons why people really don't want to work with me. And how you respond to that will tell me whether you're ready or not. And if you're not ready, we don't even have a conversation.
1: You know what, Lee? I um, am will get back to that. I'm actually interested because you, you have my attention. Let's put it this way, because I like your energy. I like your passion and all of this. So at least I'm interested to find out more, right? And I hope that some of the listeners are going to have the same feelings and probably hopefully reach out to you and you know just just to find out you know because i don't think i have a problem i you know i i do i think even after conversation with you i would still maintain that i don't have a problem maybe it, the the idea would change but that maybe is enough for me to explore more and i i like i like what you're doing um I want to, because we don't have so much time today, because there are still two things that I would really be interested in pursuing because, you know, I find the story of you just basically jumping into the poker world, becoming a writer without writing experience. It's fascinating, you know, and you making that leap. It's, it's just brilliant. And now, obviously, the work that you're doing in the poker world, um, the interviews that you have with some of the biggest names in poker a lot of interesting stuff there and i would be really interested to talk about what have you learned from those interviews i don't i don't think we have enough time for that
0: well we we can we can we can go to we can, let's go to quarter past
1: okay yeah all right so that's one thing and another thing that i want to and you can probably tie them together somehow because uh-huh. i'm actually just interested about your journey it's not often that we hear somebody um Retire from one career, say, okay, I'm going to be a writer. Haven't written anything of substance before, not a novelist, not a journalist. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it in the poker world. And then find the purpose in a new thing of helping other people, right? So the journey itself is interesting. And as with every journey, I assume that everybody that you talk to, they have some sort of impact and you know, adjust your direction in one, one way or another. So maybe that's how we can tie together, you know, what have you learned from from those multiple interviews, numerous interviews that you had in the poker world, and obviously being in and around poker world. Um, yeah, but so maybe it's your journey and, and mm-hmm. you are good at talking. So go ahead and <laughs> tell, us, okay. tell us the okay. story there.
0: I can, I can tell you – let me think about this a little bit. Maybe we can go with this. So, you know, I one of the people I've been speaking to um, on DM and Twitter, a lad who plays poker, he's uh, 21. I could talk about him because he's anonymous and I don't even know his name. So mm-hmm. he's 21. And he is convinced that the only way for him to make it in the world and to be financially free is to gamble. Convinced. Like, I keep asking him the question, challenging question. Are you 100% sure that the only way that you can achieve financial freedom is through gambling? And his answer is yes, 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 all the time, right? And in one aspect of that, I think to myself, wow, this kid's got a lot of problems, right? Like there's an addiction here, obviously. He doesn't want to tear himself away from it. He can't see the reality. Um, And in my experience of trying to work with people between 20 and 25, it's a non-starter anyway. Like I I don't work with people that young, okay? Um, But then there's another part of me. It's like I admire him. I admire him because he has a dream no matter what we think about that dream, he has a dream and he's dedicated at a very young age to go out and get it. And so purpose is, I think is really important. And it's a question whenever I ask poker players, what is your purpose that always stumps them or they're not willing to share or they don't believe in the concept of purpose, you know? So, as I've grown and evolved my understanding of purpose, because I'm always thinking about how can I um, alleviate people's pain points? And a lot of people's pain points in addiction revolve around meaning and purpose. So in AA, for example, they have what's called a dry drunk, somebody who stops drinking and then doesn't stop complaining and moaning that they can't drink for the next 30 years right that is someone quite clearly lacking in meaning and purpose. and what I found in my work is if you can help somebody find their meaning and purpose, then they won't need to drink alcohol, take drugs or smoke because they're waking up every morning genuinely loving what they're doing and obviously the work on loving themselves. So when I first came into poker, that was the first time where I was... I'd I'd woken up, if you like. It's like that scene in The Matrix where Neo says, why do my eyes hurt? And Morpheus says, well, you're using them for the first time. That's how I felt. The morning I woke up and I didn't have to look at my phone and read that a train of mine had been canceled, that an employee had injured his finger, that that Fred had gone sick. And and then the subsequent phone calls of my, my senior manager complaining about it. I had none of that. It was utter freedom, right? And poker at the time, like... My goal was I want to win a World Series of poker bracelet. I want to be a professional poker player. I want to uh, win a WPT title, but also at the same time, and I want to create this business to help people quit alcohol. So I I had a a defined, uh, definitive meaning and purpose in that moment. Now, before that, I had one that was I want to be a CEO on the railway. But the way that I had thought about this one was very different to the non-thinking, oh, I'll just be a CEO on the railway. Like I was thinking about it. Like Mm -hmm. I had a coach that was saying, okay, how are we going to get you from the railway to um, helping millions of people quit alcohol? Like I had a coach, I had a guide to help me do that. So one of the first things really important for me, if I'm giving anybody advice on how to make these journey and these switches, you have to invest in yourself. Like you have to invest in yourself financially. You have to invest in yourself time-wise because once you get into a program and somebody who is, I'm asking you questions and getting you to think differently, uh, which we see when we get a new poker coach or we enroll in Phil Galvan's Run It Once or something like that. You know, What we tend to do as human beings is we'll do it for a bit and then we'll stop. We'll tell ourselves, I don't have the money for that anymore. I don't need that anymore. I've outgrown that. I don't have the time for it. Right, A little bit like Rui was saying earlier on. I don't need it anymore because I'm winning. Timothy Kuznetsov, two teller, said to me, when I got to 5'10", I hit a brick wall. But I'm so glad I did. Because if I didn't hit that brick wall, and I got lucky at 5'10", I would never have been the player I am today. Because I I had to reach out to Phil Galphon and said, help me get through 5'10". Right? So being around people who can push you, not just to get you over a hump, but forever. Like, we know we have to eat otherwise we're going to die. We know we have to drink. We're going to die. We know we have to exercise to some degree or we're going to die, right? Like just get it in your head that we need to have some form of group coaching or some interaction with a coach that is going to excel us in some area. Don't wait for your marriage to be falling apart to go into therapy, go into relationship coaching. So you never need therapy as an example, right? Mm -hmm. So, so that, that is like super important. And also, don't, this is where the coach comes in as well is like, how can you figure out what your skills are and then use them in a different way? So I have a, a, a woman who's been in my community for three years. We celebrated the other week. Her name is Stella. She's in the evolution stage of our phase. She's married. Her kids are grown up and she's selling her house. She's bought a van and her and her husband are just going to travel around the UK in a van. That is her dream, and we've helped her get there, right? But she dropped into the conversation the other day, oh, yeah, I, I think I might do some hairdressing while I'm in the van. So I said to her, well, why do you want to do some hairdressing? And she just kind of shrugged, right? Because she's, she's a former salon owner, and she's, she's done hair all her life. She said, well, that's what I do. And because we're a challenging community, I said to her, well, okay, what are the feelings you get when you cut hair? And she found it a difficult question to answer, but she said, I I get in the zone. There's like a, a kinesthetic relationship between me and hair. It's not even me and the person, it's me and the hair. And it takes me some time, some visits for me to get this hair. And I'm in the zone. I'm like focused and time just drifts by and I don't know what's going on. And I feel peace, equanimity joy, freedom, all that. How similar is that to poker, right? Like Mm -hmm. sometimes we get in the zone. So I said to her, "Hmm, you don't want to cut hair then. You want the feeling of peace, equanimity, and to be in the zone. Because it's not what we do that that drives our behavior. It's how we feel. So, So now she can say to herself, with my help, Okay, what else could I do to get those same feelings? So it's like, let's get your skill set out and see what you can do. Good example for Stella is she knows how to quit alcohol. Okay, let's teach you to teach other people to quit alcohol. Do you think you could get that peace, that equanimity, be in the zone, that feeling that you're actually, you know, when you look at a woman and her hair's all beautiful, you look at a woman and she saved her life. Like, do you think that you that would generate the same feelings? Yeah, whoa, fucking come on, let's go. Whoa, I never thought I'd be able to do this. And that's what I was taught to me on the railway. Like when, when I got my first coach, she said to me, I know you hate the railway, Lee, but what is it do you love about it? i tell you one of the things I said, you know, after two weeks of crying and thinking that was a fucked up mess because I didn't know what my life purpose was. At 35, I said, I don't know what this means, but I love talking. I'm just going to say it. I love talking. I like, the, like being the center of attention. I like the sound of my own voice. She said, unpack it. Why? Ego. Um, I like being the star. I like being the center of attention. What else? People laugh at me. What else? Uh, I, I, I help people. How do you help people? Well, people come to me and ask me for advice. Right. When, you're, when I'm at conferences on the railway and I stand up, I, I can feel that I'm having an impact. Right. Right. How can, we do, uh, how can we make a living doing that? And I said to her, well, you can't. She said, well, Oprah Winfrey has. I'm no Oprah Winfrey, but I get paid today to come on podcasts like this or stick a mic in someone's face and someone pays me to interview them where I engage in a conversation or I create training products where I'm talking, or I do seminars or speeches where I'm talking, everything I did on the railway. Yet I told myself I hated the railway. I didn't hate the railway. I hated certain aspects of how it was making me feel. And, and that, that allowed me to ignore all the positive feelings that I was getting from that. So then when you, when you learn that, and you, you're confronted with the poker industry, and you say to yourself, well, can you write? Let's give it a go. Let's give it a go. And there were some times in the beginning when I wrote, it made me feel good. It made me feel like an artist. It made me feel creative. Like, I, it made me feel challenged. It made me feel afraid and scared out of my mind, you know? And then I thought to myself, do you know what? I can interview people like this woman said. My first interview was with Dave the Devilfish Elliot who's oh,
1: wow. deceased
0: now. Yeah. You know, it was a phone interview. I was on my anniversary in Brighton mm. interviewing him. My first live interview was Libri. And, and, and I, I was shitting myself. But I'll tell you this, the build up to that conversation and how I felt and how I felt five minutes into the conversation and exactly how I felt the day before I came on to talk to you. It's just part of the process. I feel nervous. I feel anxious. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to say or how it's going to go. I'm not sure how I'm going to connect. I want to go to the toilet, right? And then I just come on, switch it on, and it's game time. And I realize that that's part of the process. Mm-hmm. I don't have to run away from it. I don't have to be afraid of it. And it's the same with addiction. you know. I can't drink. I can't do what it is. The voice is in my head. I need to drink right now. My job is to provide them with enough armory that they can widen this expanse between stimulus and response to such a degree that they realize, holy shit, I didn't have to drink. Boom! How did that happen? And I just turn around and say, because you're a human being. And you're built and designed to sit with uncomfortable feelings. You've forgotten that you lost your mom. You forgot that you lost your job. You forgot that you got sucked out on with your flush jaw to win a World Series of poker Bracelet. You forgot all those things in this moment that your capabilities are much better than you think they are. So you know that is important. Feedback is also important as well. You write an article, you put it out. Ten people say it's shit. One person says it's good. One of my um, most difficult. I am high stakes poker interviews. Who is with Tom Dwan?
1: Mm-hmm. Why is that? People
0: don't. Well, people don't know this, but get Well, people know this. <laughs> getting a Tom Dwan interview is exceptionally difficult. The only long you know, the lengthy interview I will get with Tom Grant is the one that I've had with Tom Grant. But what people don't know is I interviewed him twice, both for over an hour. Because the first time that I did it, I didn't like it. And I plucked up the courage to say to him, I know I just had an hour of time, but I don't like it. Everybody wants an interview with you. They don't care about anybody else. They want your interview. We didn't get into it. We need to do it again. We did it again and I still don't think we got into it right um, sometimes when I interview poker players and Tom's one of these is the there isn't a difference between life and poker so much when it comes to things like interviews so anything that I anything that he says to me during an interview in his mind can be used against him by his opponent, mm. anything. Now you don't get this a lot, but you do get it with some really high performers. I don't want to talk to you because I don't want people to gain an edge on me. So, so that came out with Tom. So it was a really difficult conversation because he didn't want to go the places I wanted him to go that I felt my audience were expected of me. So my my audience aren't expecting me to ask him uh, questions on his poker ability. They're, my audience are expecting me to ask him questions about his mental state and about his his life and how he deals with all the things we've been talking about for the last hour. We, we didn't get there, but when I've been talking to people on DM, telling them, "Hey, look, you know, why do you follow me? What's going on?" There's been a few people who have said to me, "I well." Lots of people say I love your I am high stakes poker interviews, but a few people have said, and my favourite has been Tom Dwan. So you you never. But aside from that, when you look at the comments, there's a load there to say this is shit. So it's 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 understanding that you're going to get feedback that's going to be like, okay, this is not good, this is not working. Can I get anything constructive out of that? But at the same time, hang on, this person liked it. What did this person like about it? So. You know using that feedback to improve yourself as a writer or, or learn to disregard some feedback because you don't think it's really kind of serving and helping you. You know, I, I had a writer once um, who I knew didn't like me, and I went on to him in the Bahamas during PCA and I said, What's your problem with me? You know, and this guy turned around and said to me, um, You don't want to, you don't want to know, and I said, No, I, I do want to know. And he said, basically, basically, he said in, you know, you're a fucking prick. Basically, you're um, a cancer to this kind of like industry. You're just a monkey behind a keyboard tapping keys. Right. He's like, um, you're an embarrassment. Like as a writer, you're, you're just an embarrassment. And I took that. And uh, immediately, I'm like fucking angry, want to fight him, uh, like thinking all these ways that I can like diminish his work and uh, make myself better than him. And then I go away and I think about it and and I say to myself, you know, a lot of what he's saying is right. A lot of what he's saying is right. There are times when I sit down and I'm interviewing somebody and I know I'm providing quality work. There's times when I sit down and I really think about a piece really deeply, and I know I'm providing good quality work. There's also a time when I get stuck in a rat race and I produce a lot of shit because i got too much stuff to do, and poker becomes lower down on the pecking order than helping save someone's life. And that guy probably sees a lot of that shit and thinks it's shit and points out my shit. And you've got to appreciate that. Because if you surround yourself with people who just point out oh, yes men or yes women, it's akin to just getting lucky in poker, right? You never really, like Timothy said, like True Teller said, sometimes you've got to hit a wall. His wall was 5'10", my wall was this guy in the Bahamas telling me that I was a, I was a fake, I was a phony. And He's not wrong. I, I was like this morning <laughs> reading to my four-year-old daughter. And I was explaining to her that when when someone writes speech, that there is marks around the speech, and I couldn't remember what they were called. And I'm a writer. If someone gave me a piece of work and said, put the semicolon and the commas in there, I wouldn't be able to do it because I use Grammarly. So so in his eyes, am I fake? Am I phony? Yeah. In that respect, I am. But do some people pick up the work and think, well, I, I I kind of like the way he's written this yeah some people do that as well so it enabled me to say to myself do i need to go to writing school and really change myself what can i take on from what he's telling me here and what can i disregard and go on my own journey and this is really important with poker and poker coaching it's really important in life you know um so that really helped the escalation to like high stakes poker That just came, I'd like to say it was by luck, but I, I, and I'm a great believer in putting what you want out there in the world and letting it happen, right? So when I, um, when I first got into poker writing, I realized that I, know, I got paid nothing, first of all. Then Bluff Europe magazine paid me 250 pounds to write one article. And then I was like, whoa, 250 pounds for an hour's work. I remember that clearly. But then I was like, that ain't going to pay the bills. And then Poker News hired me to do European Poker Tour Vienna. And then they paid me, I'm guessing here, but let's say it was around 1,500 pounds for working for a week. That was massive. Now Now I can pay my rent. And if I go from Vienna to Barcelona, now I can pay my bills and feed my family. Now you've got a problem though, because you're you're going through a breakup. Your kid is, you're seeing your kid like once a week. Your wife won't let you see him because you're in Barcelona and she won't let you switch your weeks. And you're caught between that. If I continue doing this, I'm gonna live my dreams. But if I stop this to be with my boy, I'm gonna end up back on the railway. And that, that that decision has been probably the most controversial and challenging decision for anyone who's you know particularly my son, my ex-wife, me and my, my current wife, of continuing through the poker journey and sacrificing being there for my boy. And I got very, very busy very, very quickly. I wanted more and more money to be more and more secure, so I didn't have to go back to the railway. I, I can't explain how terrified I was about going back to the nine to five. So I was in Paris, Johannesburg, fucking here, there. And then at the end I said, this is not working. So I put it out to the world. I, I can't be traveling because my wife won't let me see my son. <clears throat> and I put it out there. And then the next morning I went downstairs, I get in the lift and Tatiana Pasilich is in there. And she said, Hey, uh, this company, Calvin Air, like they're after a writer. Would you want to write for them? So I contact the guy, Bill Beady, amazing guy. They start paying me, I can't remember, something like 3,000 pounds maybe to write from home, fucking home, at any time I want. Plus, I dropped the WPT, I dropped the EPT, and I continued working with the WPT. So I could write from home, but I was going away once every two, three months. And then um, over a long, long period of time, I wanted to get away from live reporting altogether because it's it's very tiring. Um, I don't necessarily love the environment, you know. I don't. Uh, so everybody wants, come on, let's go party, and I don't want to party. I just want to work and get the fuck out of there. I I don't really like the atmosphere a lot of times at live poker tournaments. And then I got uh, contacted by paw Poker people. And they said, hey, you know, would you like to come and try to help us make Trident Poker a a bigger brand? And I was thinking, how can we do that? And I was like, why don't we make ourselves a home of high stakes poker? Why don't we create this series where we do something different and try to get inside the minds of high stakes poker players? And that's where that started. And, you know, we've curtailed that a little bit because of the pandemic, but, you know, I would like to get back to that. I, I like to interview every single high stakes, public, no matter who they are, because I think there's some value in all of that. But uh, my team are more like, no, 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 no. Let's just focus on the ones that people will watch. Mm-hmm. But the feedback that I get is you watch one or two and you end up going down the rabbit hole and you, you know, I get people saying, I love the Dominic Niche one. I'll be like, oh, I found that one quite challenging. Oh, I love the Tom Darwin. I found it really challenging. I love the Andrew Robo one. Oh yeah, that was really good, you know? But what, do, what, what have I learned from all of these high-stakes poker players? I, you know in terms of picking their brains, I can distill it down into one thing. I'm learning that they're just like me, that their problems are the same as mine, and that status and success is very subjective, and that some of us me. I've been conditioned to believe that the wealthy and the rich and the famous and the so-called successful are somehow better than us. And Dan Smith, Isaac Haxton, a few others, if you're listening to this, and I've given you Justin Bonomo and I've given you a hard time when I've been on this tour, that's my inner child failing to deal with with this status issue, which has nothing to do with you and has everything to do with me, right? Like, that ain't happening no more. I'm, not, I'm done making gods out of people. When I'm next on the tour and Phil Ivey's there, Phil Ivey is just a guy who I'm going to go and have a conversation with to see if I can get him to have an interview. He ain't my god no more. Isaac's not my God no more. Dan Smith's not my God no more. I've made those mistakes. I've grown up a lot in the last year, and that is the biggest mistake. But the biggest takeaway is, fuck, yes. I can be who I want to be. I'm okay. There's nothing wrong with me. Jason Kuhn is fucked up. Yes. Justin's fucked up. Andrew's fucked up. Tom Dwan's fucked up. Phil Ivey's fucked up. Yes, yes, yes that makes me feel a whole lot better because now I don't feel like I'm, I need to create this bullshit story in my mind. And once you can realize that, you know, you can just fucking fly, fly, you know, it's like the, it's it's right now, like physically, mentally, I'm in the best spot of my life. And going back to what we said about purpose, I know we've reached our hard stop, but we can keep talking. It's okay. You Mm -hmm. said we'd do this. Now, when (laughs) you said that, we might, yeah. Yeah, when you talk about purpose, I believe that purpose is in in perpetuity. It doesn't stop. We don't know what happens when the physical body dies. It could even keep going beyond that. We don't know. And I think once we step into our purpose and we experience it and we deliver, then a new grander purpose emerges in front of our eyes. So in terms of poker, my purpose has led me to sitting down and being able to have a conversation with Phil Ivey, Dan O'Granoff, Phil Helmer, Tom Dwan, Timothy Kuznetsov. But now I'm there, a new purpose is calling me and saying, okay, you're interviewing these guys, but, but how can you help these guys? How can you help them? They're, they're sharing with you the issues that are going on in life, but how can you help them? Don't send them to some really expensive shrinkly. Do you have it within you to help them with these problems? Yes. Why? Because I've had them. I've experienced them and I've overcome them. And I'm intelligent enough and emotionally intelligent enough to figure out how to put that together in a coachable, teachable format. Because I'm going to continue to grow as a coach. I'm going to continue to grow as a, an entrepreneur, a business owner, and as a human being. Right. So that's where I am at the moment and why I'm reaching out. and. And it started with like high stakes. I was like, I, I want to I really help high stakes poker players. But I've realized as people are coming to me that it's, it's not going to be high stakes poker players. It's just going to be poker players. I've got a porn addiction. I've got an opiate addiction. I've got workaholic addiction. I've got alcohol addiction. I'm smoking cigarettes and I can't stop. Like it, this, this is, i I got a terrible relationship with my wife. You, you don't believe how many people say that to me behind the doors. I ain't got an addiction, but i got a terrible relationship with my wife that is going to lead to an addiction. So that is being generated by an addiction somewhere, and that addiction is being fueled by shame. Like it's, and, it, and it goes right back to this resignation period, as I call it, where we're teenagers, where there's a great book called uh, The Shame That Binds You. I can't name, remember the author now. And he calls that moment a teenager soul murder. I love it. We kill our soul. We're so ashamed of who we are, our weirdness and our lack of normality and our inability to be like everybody else that we fucking kill ourselves we we just kill ourselves and we bury it we put this new mask on and a new one and a new one and a new one and a new one and more armor more armor more armor because we can't be vulnerable and the next thing you know we're walking around the world and we can't fucking move and we can't breathe you know like when I got to 35 and I left the railway boom all of them come off and I was like suck out in, you know like if you was around me when i was 35 i must have been a real pain in the ass to be around because <laughs> i wanted to take on the world and everyone around me was like dude just come back to the bar and have a drink your old self what the fuck's the matter with you you know
1: yeah you know i want to reiterate something that you said and i think it's such an important um, point that it's worth repeating Everybody has problems. Everybody has problems. No matter what you think about somebody who achieved something with the huge status, et cetera, they have problems. And anytime you do anything that is public, you're going to have a lot of haters. Because there's going to be people who are going to point out things they don't like because that's what they do. They like to point out things they don't like. And that's just going to happen. You know, I, I think... I've watched many of the interviews that you did in I am high stakes poker, which I think is wonderful work. And you know, there's, as far as I know, nobody else that does that format with all all these people in, in one place. So it's, it's amazing the work that you're doing. And yet, even for that great work, you still get a lot of people saying, oh, this is bullshit. You know, this is, this is crap. Like he asked the wrong questions, et cetera, et cetera. The point is you asked the questions and there's going to be people who are going to love it. And there's going to be people who are not going to love it. But as long as you're doing it for yourself, as long as you're doing it for your purpose, with, with your idea in mind, which eventually led to you trying to find a way to help the people that you talk, because it's no longer about, okay, I'm going to talk to Tom, I'm going to talk to Timofey, you know, I'm going to talk to them, I'm going to talk to them, and I want to find out about, I want to help them if I can, I want to see the way, you know, so that's what what's important in the end, and we often forget that, you know, people go into poker for the freedom, so they think. And yet they still lose the freedom because they end up, you know, just slaving away 12 hours a day, uh, no life, no family life, social awkwardness, and all all the stuff that comes with it. It's great to use your freedom to try to find something that makes you feel good. You, You said it before that, you know, whatever we do as a hairdresser, that lady that you mentioned, you know, it's not the work. Of a hairdresser that's important it's how it makes her feel you Mm. speaking in the conferences in the railway industry it's not about you speaking and being the center of attention is you getting the feeling that I actually make a difference at least somebody Mm. in the audience gets the value makes me feel happy right so it's great to see that you know you found this way and with the work that you're doing right now I hope you know you help you will help uh, a lot of people also to to find a better way to live their life you know having more fulfilling better enjoyable life and especially with the current situation with the pandemic i think so many of the issues that people are having are sort of exposed exposed to a much higher level because for example for somebody who used to think that oh well I drink for social reasons I only drink in a party well guess what when you're in a lockdown and there is no party you're not going out yet you're still getting hammered every weekend right well maybe that's something you haven't realized before and now it's exposed same you've mentioned you know the relationships of a lot of people in their families husband-wife kind of thing doesn't work out all that great when you're stuck there and you know some things are taken away from you so I can
0: tell you a a story on that, which would, I think it will help a lot of people. It will certainly get them thinking. So my dad is somewhere between 65 and 70, retired. My mom is 65, so she had me when when she was very young. And my dad has drunk alcohol since she's 14, and he has never in my life drunk at home. I've never seen my dad drink alcohol at home, okay? My mom will never buy alcohol to drink at home, but if we, in, in the rare times we have a party at the house or Christmas where we will bring alcohol, she'll drink it, right? But there's no alcohol in that house. I've, i never grew up in a house with alcohol in when I was with my parents. Okay, now, the pandemic hits and I'm calling my dad from LA and, he, oh, my mom, and my dad is shoving bottles of Corona in the video Oh, look at this. I'm drinking Corona during Corona, right? Right. This is what I'm saying about my dad having no fucking clue that I'm I'm dealing with people who are suicidal and he's shoving a bottle at this. Is the death effect, right? But here's the thing. A lot of people will look at that, who are stuck in the matrix. They'll look at that, they'll they'll look at the picture and there's a garden, and the sun's out, and my mom's there, my dad's there, and my sister's there, and my sister is 40, and the three of them are drinking bottles of wine and bottles of Corona. And they'll look at that, and they'll say, wow, that is is connection. The reason we drink, the sun, the alcohol, is bringing a father and uh, his daughter and his wife together. And why it's so beautiful is this guy, has not got a loving bone in his body, and he doesn't know how to connect with anybody. He's never shown love physically at all. And my mum has given up all of her power to this guy. So this is a beautiful moment because now they can connect and be emotional, right? This is beautiful. That's the lie that the world is told and what those three people in the, in the garden will tell us. This is the truth. The truth is, these people don't drink at all. My sister, different, she does, but my mom and dad don't drink at all. Pandemic hits. Now, all of a sudden, my dad can't leave the house. He's stuck with this person who he feels incredible shame over the fact that he's never been able to show up for her. And she's stuck with this guy who she really doesn't even like. She certainly doesn't love. Because love isn't, you don't love somebody because you've been with them for 50 years. Love is, you know, it's an action. You need to do something. This guy's done nothing for her. So here they are in the house in lockdown. And they're forced to connect. Even when they go out, they're forced to walk together because how can you even walk alone? Like, The the world is forcing, the pandemic is forcing them to connect. The the daughter who never leaves her bedroom, suddenly they're forced to connect because she can't go to the gym or can't go to work, her only outlet. So what do they do when the world gives them the beautiful opportunity to connect? They fucking disconnect. They pick up wine, they pick up alcohol, they go in the garden and they drink. And the more they drink, the further they get away from each other. And the further they get away from each other, the better they feel. Because they're like, I don't have to talk to this person anymore because I can't even see this person. I can't even hear this person. Ah! And then they wake up the next morning and someone says, what did you do yesterday? I had a fucking great day. Went in the garden, got smashed. It was wonderful. I had a good laugh. My mom and dad, did you really? Is that really, really what happened? Now, people might say, how can you say that? How can you jump in somebody's mind and say that? I know my family. I know my mom, I know my dad, I know my sister, and I've done enough work to see what is going on there. Alcohol doesn't connect you, it disconnects you. And if anybody wants to trial that, just do like an A, B experiment. Get your bestest friend on the world, stick him in a room with you, with no external stimuli, just you and him on a stool, and have a conversation. And do it the next day, but have a couple of bottles of wine. And then you score how deeply connected you became. Right? I'm telling you, the one without the alcohol will be more connected because the more you keep drinking alcohol, the more disconnected you're going to be, the more your body is going to be saying to you in your head, you need alcohol, you need alcohol, you need alcohol, you're running out of alcohol, you're running out of alcohol. And that's how it works. It's not, it's, you know, it's a depressant. It Every time you drink alcohol, it works by telling you that you need to drink more. Oh, Quick, quick, the effects are going, the effects are going, I need to drink more. It's going, it's going, it's going, I need to drink more. How can you be deeply connected with somebody when that's going on, you know? Mm. So I really just wanted to impress that because that to me is the biggest problem right now in the pandemic is people think they're connected when they're not, they're disconnected, but they just have no clue because of the death effect, you know, and it's really difficult for people like me to have conversations. We can't even have those conversations. That's why you get on a podcast like this, you share those stories and you hope that somebody who's in that back garden listens to it and says to themselves, is he is he is he true? At least think about it. Is that really what's going on? Hmm. Let's see. Why do we never sit in the garden without alcohol? Ever. Ever, 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 ever. Why is my mum, my dad, and my sister never, ever, ever sat in the garden ever and talked about life? Because they don't like connecting with each other. <laughs> you know, it's it's this is where. Coaching, opening yourself up to different ways of thinking, believing, teasing apart. Though it's it's just like poker. Like I'm no high stakes poker player. I try to be a poker professional and I blew it. But it's like, why did you raise from a cutoff? Why do you raise that much? Why this? Why that? And it's like following those lines and asking the right questions and uncovering different ways of thinking and then taking what you want from it because you're going to use it and then throwing away the rest because you don't want to use it and then getting somebody else. And then. 10 years 20 years down the line you're winning a world series of bracelet and i'm saying to you how did you do that who was your greatest mentor and you can't really tell because you you've done such a good job of picking bits and pieces just one thing on this one podcast might end up winning you a world series of pocket bracelet because you thought about life differently like i think consuming this kind of content is is amazing i just want to say that what you're doing is amazing you know
1: mm. Well, thank you. I think what you're doing is amazing because it's not a comfortable thing to talk about, you know, especially when you have other things that you do. Your 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 work that you do in the poker, you know, because for the long time, you didn't want to reach out to this crowd with your message because it might alienate the crowd. It might hurt your business, you know, so I, I'm I'm really glad that you're taking the step, you know, and also the, The metaphor that you brought with that sort of picture that you described of, you know, three people sitting in the garden and, and the sun shining and everything is beautiful, et cetera, et cetera. And then the next day you would talk to them and they're like, we had a wonderful time. It was just great, a great day. It's a beautiful metaphor because, you know, very often we don't ask ourselves a question. Was it really? Was it really great? Was it necessary to to drink? Why do we do it every every weekend? Why do we always have to do it? People don't ask themselves that question usually. I know I don't.
0: I can um, feel you. I can sense your cogs whirring though. I can. Whoa. I can. Feel, I can feel it. Like next time you have a steak and a wine, you're going to be thinking to yourself: Is this wine really? Um, is this really accentuating my value here? with mm. with my with my state you know here's a, here's a good example for you like recently I read a book called The Inflammation Spectrum by a guy called Dr. Will Cole mm-hmm. I did a podcast for him actually if you, if you listen to the Paul Paul Poker podcast you'll hear my podcast with him about inflammation and I took the inflammation score and I realized that across my bodily systems my inflammation was really high and I thought I was a healthy vegan like but it made sense because my wife was giving me feedback that I was forgetting things, that I was angry, that I was losing my temper, that um, and I was feeling tired and lethargic in the afternoons, all this kind of stuff. So I get scored really high, and he gives and and then he says, "Well, okay, because of your rating, you had to take the eight week elimination diet." <clears throat> so as a vegan, that's really challenging. So I had to take everything that was inflammatory out of my diet. And I had no idea, like as a vegan who doesn't eat sugar and processed food, I thought it was really healthy. I had no idea how much food that I thought was healthy was causing me inflammation. So I realized, for example, it's no good me saying like I have been, I'm not going to eat sugar because sugar is the most addictive substance on the planet. And I don't like the way it makes me feel. If, If coconut sugar doesn't create inflammation, then I should be okay to eat coconut sugar, right? So I cut all this stuff out. Like my protein sources got down to like four protein sources. I cut it all out. I'm now on like, I'm no longer on the diet. Like this is my life. Like I'm 15 weeks before I start. It's my life, right? And what happens is you reach a certain level of homeostasis. And instead of thinking, fuck, like if me and you were at a restaurant and you were eating a chocolate cake, 15 weeks ago, there might have been a part of me that was, would said, Oh, I wish I could eat that chocolate cake. Now, that's what I'm battling against. That's what everyone's battling against in addiction, it's that lack. So, I don't want people to do that. If you want to eat chocolate cake, fucking eat chocolate cake. I used to think that fillet steak was the greatest like meal in the world. Like for me, it was the best meal. But you go 15 weeks without any of this stuff harming your body. Your body tells you what you want to eat because it, it triggers you to eat certain things. And I'm telling you, my body right now doesn't trigger me to eat uh, sugar. It doesn't trigger me. You no, know, I don't eat potatoes. Like if you knew me, that is insane. Like French fries, like that fry, the crisp, boom. I go in a restaurant. I want to order fries. Everywhere. My wife laughs at me. I don't eat potatoes because they're they're inflammatory to some people. And when I try to put them back, it I got bloated. And I got a lot of guts, so I stopped eating them. My body now just wants certain things, so if you were to say to me now, "Wow, Lee, do you, you know tell me that story about um, the ice cream that you had when you was a little kid and you know and how that made you feel, all of a sudden, that means nothing to me because I realize right now that actually there's a lot more going on psychologically and that's driven biologically by what we would call unfarious means. So if you eat more sugar or processed foods or inflammatory foods, your body's gonna want you to not the inflammatory, but the process, you're gonna want to eat more of it. It's to do with the hormone ghrelin, I believe, right? It kind of like fake stimulates is ghrelin. But if you cut all that shit out and you just kind of like you're on the normal level, just eating fruit and vegetables and a few protein sources, then all of a sudden, I'm not wanting to have sugar. Like, why is that? I really wanted it. Why don't I want it anymore? So it's really interesting to ask those questions and to start saying to yourself, wow, I had a huge story built up around sugar. Mm-hmm. So you know, so one of the first things I say to people when they come and work with me with addiction is, while you think that this is gonna be really hard, I want you to know, and this is controversial, I want you to know, that i read a book and stopped smoking and never craved a single puff for 19 years i read a book and stopped drinking alcohol and never craved to drink alcohol that is simple when you when you when you don't believe into the lie that something can be super complicated it can be simple it doesn't have to be this difficult and this challenging like i'm not missing out on anything i can easily go to a restaurant with my wife sit down and eat fuck all. Who says I have to eat because I'm in a restaurant? Do you know, when I stopped drinking, I went to a bar with my friend Lee in Bristol, and he said, what do you want to drink? He said, I don't drink anymore. Get me a water. He said, I'm not ordering you a fucking water. Uh, get me a cup of tea. I'm not ordering you a fucking cup of tea. He said, what do you want? I said, I don't want anything. He said, well, you've got to have something. Why? I'm not thirsty. But you're in a bar. No, I don't want anything. Okay, you fucking prick, you know? And then slowly you phase those friends out of your life. And then you go to restaurants and you go to the bar and everyone's like, what do you want? You say, I'm good. I'm actually here for the connection and the laughter and the joy and sharing our lives. I I don't want to drink sparkling water or coke or, Mm. or wine, you know? And it's the same with a restaurant. I'm a foodie, but think about it as a challenge. Like some people look at veganism and they say to themselves, oh my God, how could you deprive yourself of all this wonderful food? Really? Go to like a Michelin star vegan restaurant and see how they turn all that shit into like wonderful stuff. Like, Or like me on this uh, elimination diet, really restrict yourself to what you can eat and then challenge yourself to make it beautiful and creative ways. Like you know, that, that to me is taking it to a different level rather than just sticking with the status quo all the time.
1: Wow. And, you know, I think the important thing here is once you start feeling good about the changes, then the changes don't matter anymore. You don't think back to craving sugar. You know, you're not one of those guys who... I'm 10,000 days sober, or you know, 50 years sober, but I want to drink silently. You, know, you just you don't think about it because the change happened. You feel good about it, and that's it. Mm. You know, you, know, you take you the sugar it, out yeah. of your diet. You don't want it. You feel so much better. You don't even think about having sugar. The problem with somebody, for example. You know thinking okay let's i I want to try to get alcohol out of my life. The problem is not getting alcohol out of their life is facing their life is the problem
0: yeah and because coming what do you do yes, coming out from a sca- coming at it from a scarcity mindset as well is you you're gonna you're gonna fail right mm. like i want i I don't want it like there's nothing to give up. If, if alcohol provides you with no value, and all the value for thought it provided you is a, 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 a delusion, or you can work your way around it to make sense, you don't need it. So, for example, on the taste issue, you know, I used to like certain wines, and I would say that they tasted really nice. But I also really like a smoothie. So, if I go to a restaurant and they have smoothies on the menu now, I love to order a smoothie. That's why my bills are so high because a smoothie would be like fifteen bucks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but back, but back in the day, I would never have dreamed of having a smoothie. Um, now, if you say to me, like one of the exercises we do is, um, what what do you like the taste of more than your favorite drink of alcohol? And there's fucking there's like a big list of them. So why do you drink alcohol if you like this big list, right? So so let's say you like to drink uh, green juice more than you like to drink your favorite wine. Then slip your green juice in. You know, why don't you take your bottle of? Your... So then you'll just get all these excuses. Oh well, yeah, it's stupid to take your green juice in, or um, it doesn't complement the meat better, right? Okay, so let's have meat with wine, and let's have meat without wine, and let's test how we really truly feel. Savor every moment with a notepad and a pen, and really rate it. If one experience is a ten and one experiences a nine do we do we really keep putting that poison in our body we We continue putting the poison in our body if the If the rating of eating the steak and the wine is a ten and eating the steak without the wine is a one, then I'll say to you, "Go ahead, knock yourself out." but the degradations here of quality that we're selling ourselves, which is an impassable, immovable decision, don't exist. They don't exist. It's like, let's say you go to a supermarket, you go into a house party, and you go to a supermarket, and you say to yourself, this is coming from personal experience, right? I don't want to drink a lot of beers because if I drink a lot of beers, I'm going to get bloated. I'm going to want to go piss all the time. I don't like going in rounds with people where we're all drinking pints. I'm going to get myself a bottle of wine right? So I'm actually going to get myself two bottles because I know I'll drink two. This is my favorite bottle of wine. I'm going to take these two bottles and I'm going to protect them because it's my favorite wine and I don't want anybody else to drink it because I'll end up drinking shit. So I protect it. I'm at the party. This is my little stash. I drink it all and I've run out. It's nine o'clock at night. This party starts three o'clock in the afternoon, right? It's nine o'clock at night. We're not going anywhere until 2 o'clock in the morning, and I've got no wine left. Do I hail a taxi, go back to the supermarket, and get the same wine? Or do I pick up a cup of God knows what with a fucking dead fly in it, and do I drink it? Because we don't care. It's the same with smokers. How many smokers at a party have we seen or have we been that has got the ashtray, put our hands in there, in all the ash, got the little dimp out and and smoked it. What the fuck? And we convince ourselves that the reason we smoke is to alleviate stress. Is there anything more stressful than going through an ashtray trying to find a dimp that was in somebody else's mouth? And by the way, even though we're in COVID now and we don't want to transmute the people and we're more aware of that, that shit will still go on. We'll still be drinking other people's drinks. We'll still be smoking other people's cigarettes. When, 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 you're, when you're sold into that lie, you don't give a fuck. You don't care. When you think there's so much value in it, you don't care. This is why people share needles. There's so much value in it. It's, it's, it's just worth doing it right now. I need to do it right now. No, no, no. If you're a professional poker player and you, you get into the game and you get any coach of any salt he's going to want to know, are you in this long-term or short-term? Because you're not going to know if you're a good player or an even half-decent player until, you, until way, way, way down the line. If you want to quit any addiction, you've got to change your glasses. You've got to stop looking at this from instant gratification. And you've got to ask yourself, does this provide me any value long-term? Long-term. Not right now, in this moment, long-term. Once you do that, you realize, actually, holy fuck, I really didn't need this at all. And the reason that I'm drinking is because I got lucky. I ended up being a professional poker player at 16. I've never had a boss ever. So I don't know what it's like to be told what to do. When people tell me what to do, I lose my shit completely and I don't know how to deal with it. So I fucking drink, right? Like it's incredible how this thing works together. How people go through insane Look at Jason Kuhn, right? Like homeless, penniless, abused by his father. Terrible things that you wouldn't want on any human being. What does he do? He turns it into good, into a force for good. Becomes one of the greatest poker players in the world, right? Has casualties along the way, but he's investing in his coaches. He's doing his time. He's doing his work. He's open-minded. He'll listen to me. He'll take on board what I'm saying. He'll listen to somebody else. Perfect gentleman, perfect human being. You know what I mean? right? I really do have to go now. I know I will. Listen,
1: I really appreciate you taking the extra time. Let's just leave with the last message. So somebody who listened to this and thought, you know what? I'm not convinced because the ones that are convinced, they're they're already contacting you. Somebody not convinced, but say, well, I want to find out more. I want to look into this. Where can they find you? What should they do?
0: First of all, if you're not convinced, that's okay. I'm not in the business of helping people quit their addictions. I'm in the business of helping people quit their addictions and live kick-ass lives. And you will not live a kick-ass life if you're trying to quit an addiction you don't want to quit. And one of the biggest problems that people have when they end up on my doorstep is they can't accept how much they love what they're doing. People love drinking alcohol. They love smoking. they, They love everything about it. Even when they come to me desperate, ready to throw themselves off a cliff. They don't realize how much they love what they're doing. So you need to understand that if you're not ready, that's okay. Okay? That's okay. The second thing, if you do come to us and you want to take part in our 1,000-day sober experience, we are not going to even tackle the subject if you quit in alcohol, for example, until the ready phase. You're going to be working with us with six months. where you drink as much as you like while you're trying to figure this out? Similarly, if you joined it for me to help you stop smoking, we have a three-month program. You're not going to stop smoking until the third month because you've already created these stories that you need these things more than you need oxygen. Why would we take them away from you? Right? We don't want to. If you're going to be miserable but not drink and you're going to be happy and drink, drink. So, so that's the third thing. If you do want to get interested, um, two ways of doing it. One, the free way. Okay? The free way. Listen to 1,000 Days Sober podcast. All right? it's been going for like seven years you can go way back down the rabbit hole listen to so many people talking about porn addiction talking about um relationships uh you name it we talk about it right it's not all about alcohol so listen to 1000 day sober podcast also go to our youtube channel you know i'm slipping out more and more videos on there shorter videos five ten minutes Uh, our instagram page is really good with um good quotes on there and, and that kind of stuff and Um, what else? And then go, if you want to work, so that's all like the free stuff, right? And the blog, we do, we got a blog as well. But if you want to work with me, like I don't work with people for nothing. So I just want to be upfront and open about that. In order for me to help more people, I need to charge people. Um, and I, and that's my intention and I'm, and I'm cool with that. Right. So if you want to work with me, then go to www1000 com and uh, set up uh, a call with me. And then I'll see if you're up for it. And then if I think you're up for it, then you can either work with me for 1,000 days, quit an alcohol, which is 2.7 years, by the way. So you're going to be working with me for 2.7 years beyond because that's what addiction is like. And that's how long it takes for us to get confident enough that we can take the training wheels off and get into this thing on our own. And I'm hoping by the end of 1,000 days, you won't want to leave anyway. Like we're creating a hub of world-class coaches where you never have to go anywhere like if you come to three run trucks, you have um uh you're not a meditator or uh, uh it's a mindfulness we have Hugh Byrne the author of the here now habit who will take you through that and help you with that if you want work with the elimination diet we know we've got um Liza Lim who will deal with the um health and wellness my wife she'll deal with the health and wellness side of that we've got Vinnie Grant will help you deal with your trauma and take you right back to when you was a kid so You know, we were into it for a long time. Um, But if you're a high stakes poker player or a poker player and you're listening to this, you're thinking, I don't want to work with this guy for 2.7 years. Um, But you want to give it a go to see if it affects your bottom line. Then we have three month programs where you give up for three months. So you can have a look about how it's affecting your life and how you're feeling at the poker table. Um, I truly believe even poker players who don't think they're addicted to alcohol, so don't have the quote unquote stereotypical issue. If they start knocking this out of their life, um, I really do believe that their EV will increase tremendously, in my own personal opinion, just the way that they will be more alert, more with it. People don't realize how many gears they've got to go up on chucks until they start going up them, you know, really honestly. So hmm. that's I get older me folks,
1: Fantastic. Lee, thanks again. I really, really appreciate you taking the time and I will put all the links and everything in the in the show notes and keep up the good work, man. Dude, thanks for the platform. I really
0: appreciate it. And I appreciate the um, the space for me to just talk. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to get a regular email from me personally, where I share my key takeaways from each latest episode, go to runchexpodcast.com and subscribe to my newsletter. And of course, I would really appreciate if you subscribe to my channel on YouTube and rate my podcast on iTunes, Spotify or any other platform where you normally listen to your podcasts. This really helps.